Let's pray. Dear Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we hold up all our weakness to your strength, our failures to your faithfulness, our sinfulness to your perfection, our loneliness to your compassion, our little pains to your great agony on the cross. We pray that you will cleanse us, strengthen us, guide us, so that in all ways our lives may be lived as you would have it lived, without cowardice and for you alone. Show us how to live in true humility, true contrition, and true love. Amen. Amen. So today we come to 2 Timothy. Uh, We will spend five weeks in this book, in this epistle, and it will close out our class together. It is St. Paul's final canonical writing. He wrote the epistle from a jail cell. If you can remember all the way back to week one when we were talking about some of the context, he's writing from a jail cell because he has been imprisoned under Nero's persecution of the Roman church. The apostle knew that he was going to die soon, and history tells us that he was correct. Now the purpose of the letter is straightforward. Knowing he would soon be martyred, St. Paul writes to request one last face-to-face visit from Timothy, his mentoree, his friend, and his son in the faith. Knowing that this would be his final letter, however, the apostle also uses it to continue the encouragement that he began in the first epistle to Timothy. To give him his final instructions, and to prepare him for the difficult ministry that laid ahead, which Timothy would soon have to face without Paul. The major theme that we find throughout this letter is the very same call to fidelity that we looked at in 1 Timothy and Titus. It is no less true in this epistle as it was in those that our fidelity springs from God's fidelity to his people. God's fidelity in Christ has such a compelling beauty to it that St. Paul cannot help but spend his final words impressing it upon Timothy. So we begin our look at 2 Timothy today with a focus on the first 14 verses and how the apostle encourages Timothy towards fidelity in the midst of suffering. Our outline for today is, first, St. Paul's fatherly encouragements. Second, the encouragement of God's gift. Third, the encouragement of God's fidelity. And fourth, the help of the Holy Spirit. So we begin in 2 Timothy 1, 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God for the sake of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. I am grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience as my ancestors did, when I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, And now, I am sure, lives in you. 
Timothy has been living and ministering in Ephesus for several years now. Yet, the problems that prompted St. Paul's first epistle still remain. Timothy has been faithfully preaching the gospel, stewarding the doctrine and the sacraments of the church week after week after week, day after day after day. And yet, the same false teachers and the same false doctrine still hold an influence over the congregation. By all modern measures of ministry assessment and success, Timothy is a failure. In God's kingdom, however, success, finger quotes, is measured not by church growth in numbers, but in fidelity. When God calls a person to ministry, and all Christians are called to ministry, he calls that person to fidelity, not to numbers, not to a church growth paradigm. Whether in good times or bad, in plenty or in want, our calling is the same. Fidelity to God in Christ in sound doctrine. Fidelity to the family of God and fidelity to God's mission. Equating fidelity to church growth is to buy into the same lies peddled by the prosperity gospel movement. Now, if I ever have to take a church planning assessment later and I fail it, we can all point to this moment uh, where it went wrong. But I stand by that success in the kingdom of God is measured by fidelity. And so far, Timothy has shown this very fidelity in his ministry. Yet, the situation in Ephesus has not changed. What then is St. Paul's response? What is his encouragement to Timothy in the face of such a difficult ministry? A ministry characterized by suffering. A suffering marked by seeing those whom Timothy loves leave the church, either by Nero's sword or by the allure of the serpent's hiss in the words of the false teachers. <clears throat> the first thing to note is that St. Paul's is St. Paul's fatherly affection for Timothy. We see this affection in the very opening of the letter in verse 2, to Timothy, my beloved child. My constant refrain throughout this class has been that we cannot reduce the language of the family of God to mere metaphor. It is a truth which requires us to reorient every other earthly relationship we have. And we ought not take it lightly when Paul says to Timothy, you are my beloved son. I'll say more about this in just a bit, but let's move on to verses 3 and 5. Through, excuse me, 3 through 5. Um, English translations uh, tend to break verses 3 through 5 up into about two to three sentences, usually three. Uh, and that's because uh, the, the grammar is really difficult <laughs> and hard to follow. But the main point is this. St. Paul thinks God, verse four, or three, rather, sorry, because of Timothy's sincere faith, verse five. <laughs> In between, Two verses, 
filled with St. Paul being St. Paul. Um, This is half of my own translation, half paraphrase to try and bring some clarity out of it. I thank God for your sincere faith as I remember you in my prayers constantly night and day. And as I do, I remember your tears and long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Everything in this passage is a reflection of Paul's affections for Timothy, his continual prayers for him, his remembering Timothy's tears at their last departure, his desire to see Timothy one last time, and his ability to vocalize the joy that that would bring him. The apostle uses very strong affective language here. He he longs or yearns to see Timothy one last time. Seeing him one last time would fill him with, or probably better, complete his joy. Even the seemingly haphazard grammar is a mark of St. Paul's emotion and affections. His love for Timothy sparking remembrances that bounces the apostle from one thought to another before finally bringing his initial thought to a close. His thankfulness to God for Timothy's sincere faith. And Paul's affection for Timothy is shown all throughout the epistle. Second, is there anything more encouraging for a child than their parents' affection? Perhaps only when that affection is vocalized in a parent's affirmation. In these short two verses, St. Paul vocalizes several affirmations of Timothy. Two, in particular, the first affirmation uh, brings us back to verse two. Like I said, I would, I would come back. And in verse two, the apostle calls Timothy his beloved child. In doing so, he is echoing the words of both affection and affirmation that God the Father spoke over Jesus at his baptism. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In alluding to the former, I think Paul's implication is that Timothy should also understand the latter. That God God the Father's proclamation over Jesus occurred just before the trial in the wilderness is no coincidence. In his humanity, the affirmation of the Father encouraged and strengthened Jesus for the ministry he was about to launch. Encouraged and strengthened him for the wilderness temptation, absolutely, but also for the blood-soaked sweat and desperation in the Garden of Gethsemane and for the cry of dereliction upon the cross. Now, despite a ministry that looks like an abject abject failure, St. Paul begins his final letter to Timothy, reminding him that he is Paul's beloved son, with whom he is well pleased. But still... The apostle goes on, and we find another affirmation in verse 5, the affirmation of Timothy's faith. Suffering is a type of sieve or sieve 
that often separates those whose fidelity to God is strengthened from those whose fidelity crumbles. And this isn't to say that true believers are immune from doubt. That any encouragement is needed in the midst of our suffering tells us otherwise. Good, faithful Christians find themselves doubting. But what suffering does reveal is in whom or in what we truly put our trust for rescue. Suffering reveals our idols. And let's be clear that for every Christian, this side of the beatific vision, the results are always mixed. It is never a pure trust in Christ alone. Thanks be to God for his grace. Now, St. Paul says that he regularly thanks God because he is convinced that Timothy's faith is sincere. And he knows it's sincere because he has witnessed it. In fact, it's the very same faith that Paul saw expressed by Timothy's mother and grandmother. And it is the very same faith expressed by Paul himself. See, suffering may shrink our faith to the size of a mustard seed. But as our Lord himself has taught us, a faith that size is enough. And when the sincerity of our faith is hidden from us in God's providence, it often takes the eyes of others to see and show us what is objectively true and objectively there. So in the midst of Timothy's suffering and such difficult ministry, St. Paul says, I am convinced of your sincere faith. St. Paul's fatherly affection and affirmation. We stop with that topic here, but as I said, it continues throughout the whole letter. So St. Paul continues to encourage Timothy as we move into verses 6 through 14. And much of this text, not just here, but also, again, throughout the rest of the, the epistle, it's actually going to expand on the themes that we see in verses 1 through 5. So we continue with verse 6. The apostle writes, For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. So St. Paul links this passage to the previous one by saying, For this reason. In other words, because I am convinced of your sincere faith, I remind you, rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. And it was in our very last class, if you can remember back that long, that we saw how Paul encouraged Timothy in his first epistle by reminding him of his ordination. Particularly, we pointed out, how God gifted him precisely for the ministry to which he was called. And along with this gifting, the apostle mentioned the prophecy which was given at his ordination. And I argue that the prophecy was not a foretelling. It was not a back-to-the-future kind of scenario, but a revealing of God's will in that moment that Timothy was called 
indeed called to ordain ministry. And the revelation of this, while it may have been through other means as well, whether spoken or, or not spoken, it was revealed at least in the ascent of those who ordained him. By ordaining him, the group of presbyters were assenting in their affirmation of Timothy. Now what's important about that, particularly to 2 Timothy, is when St. Paul says in verse 6, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. Paul was there. Paul was one of those who ordained him. From the ordination of Timothy to the end of Paul's life, nothing happened that changed Paul's mind regarding the validity of Timothy's ordination. Nothing happened which caused Paul to question Timothy's ordination and his ministry to the church of Ephesus. He did not change his mind about Timothy's gifting. Despite all appearances of failure, the apostle assures Timothy that he is certain not only of his faith, but also his calling to ministry among the Ephesians and the gifts that God has given him in order to fulfill that ministry. And St. Paul speaks of that gift, or at least the characteristics of it, in verse 7. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. I definitely heard that plosive, I'm sorry. Um, For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power. There it is again. Really adds to the effect. (laughs) And of love and of self-discipline. Now, commentators have sometimes latched onto this verse and used it to say that Timothy was very likely timid and fearful, that Paul was rebuking his cowardice. Frankly, that doesn't make sense of everything that we know about Timothy from the Acts of the Apostles and Paul's other letters. And I think a far more likely reading or understanding is not that Paul was rebuking Timothy, but encouraging Timothy to continue standing firm in the fidelity that he has so far been showing throughout his difficult ministry. Paul knew that Timothy was soon going to be facing that ministry without the presence of his friend, his mentor, and his father in the faith. And in light of this, Paul calls Timothy to continue in fidelity fanning the flames of the gift that he received. Now, part of why I take this more charitable reading, besides what we already know about Timothy's character, is St. Paul's use of the word us. God did not give us a spirit of cowardice. In fact, throughout verses 6 to 14, St. Paul uses the words us or we seven times. The lives and the ministries of Paul and Timothy have been sovereignly intertwined. All in God's providence. 
Later in the epistle, Paul will bring up examples of suffering and ministry from his own life. And it's very likely that Timothy was present for several of them. It's not as if Timothy would have forgotten these events, so why bring them up? By his own life, which Timothy has participated in, St. Paul uses his own story, his own testimony, as a reminder that suffering does not mean you have lost God's favor. Rather, it is often a product of being faithful. So God did not give Paul or Timothy a spirit of cowardice when he gifted them for their ministries. Rather, the gifts he gave to them are marked by power, love, and self-control. And through this encouragement, the encouragement that God has not given a spirit of cowardice, but power, love, and self-control, St. Paul gives this charge in verses 8 and 9. Do not be ashamed, then, of the testimony about our Lord, or of me, his prisoner. Suffering often begets shame, and shame, unclothed, begets hiding. This has been true ever since the first sin which caused Adam and Eve to recognize their nakedness and hide in shame. The gift given to Timothy and Paul, on the other hand, is characterized by power, love, and self-control. Regarding love, St. Augustine wrote, There are two loves, of which one is holy, the other unclean. One turned towards neighbor, the other centered on the self. One looking to the common good, keeping in view the society of the saints in heaven, the other bringing common good under its own power, arrogantly looking to domination. Cowardice is the idolatrous love of self acting in self-preservation. Cowardice is hiding behind a fig leaf, pretending that God never noticed your nakedness before, and when called out on it, proclaiming it's the woman's fault. But what about the gospel, or Paul's imprisonment, would bring this type of shame that leads to cowardice? What is so shameful about the gospel? Well, to the culture at large, both then and now, the good news that Christians shared was, as Bill Mounts says, that of a failed prophet rejected by his own people, executed by the world's power. Both Jesus and Paul were simply notches on the belt of victory adorning the Roman Empire. Not only was Jesus executed as a criminal, crushed by the empire, but Paul himself was soon about to join his ranks. If we want to talk about what failure looks like in a ministry, being crucified tops the list. And we've already mentioned how much Timothy's ministry looked like a failure. The temptation would be high for Timothy to cut his losses and run, to take the path of the unclean love centered on self, with back turned to the society of saints in heaven. But what? But that, says Paul, is the spirit of cowardice, not the gift which they both have received. And thus, 
St. Paul invites Timothy in verse 8 to join with him in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. You see, what, what, what culture sees as shameful, St. Paul proclaims as the power of God. And he then expands on this power in verses 9 through 12 as he encourages Timothy with God's fidelity towards his own people. He writes, Join with me in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and teacher. And for this reason, I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know the one in whom I have put my trust, and I am sure that he is able to guard until that day what I have entrusted to him. So in this passage, all the themes that we discussed way back in week three with the gospel are found. From salvation by God's grace alone and not our works to the mystery of the gospel being revealed in the person, life, and work of Christ. But notice what St. Paul highlights in verse 10 regarding the gospel that we do not find in 1 Timothy or Titus. Our Savior, Christ Jesus, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Keep that in mind. Dangling it in front of you, we'll come back. In the very next set of verses, 11 and 12, Paul continues, For this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher, and for this reason I suffer as I do. St. Paul is suffering for proclaiming this very gospel. Despite this suffering, weakness in the eyes of the Roman world, he proclaims, But I am not ashamed. For I know the one in whom I have put my trust, and I am sure that he is able to guard it until that day. Until that day would I have entrusted him. Frankly, the phrase, I am sure, is incredibly weak. Paul is utterly convinced that God is able to guard until that day what he has entrusted him. Now, throughout 1 Timothy and Titus, the apostle has written about what God has entrusted to us through the apostles, the gospel, sound doctrine, and the mission of God. And in a stunning turn, Paul now speaks about what he himself has entrusted back to God, his very life. Paul says he is utterly convinced that God is able to guard his life. Remember, this is the very St. Paul who is convinced he is about to, to face the unjust sword of Nero. 
How can he be so convinced that God is able to guard his very life when he is convinced that his life is not going to be spared? St. Paul is so convinced because he recognizes that his own salvation is the sovereign outworking of God. Salvation is, Paul says, the power of God every time. The power of God who saved us according to God's own purpose and grace. It is God who has been in control every step of the way. Every detail of Paul's life has been evidence that the sovereign God over all of creation is for him and his flourishing. Why would that change now? in the hour he is most at need. Let's go back to verse 10. Christ Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. As the apostle writes from his prison cell, awaiting his own martyrdom, does it not make sense that it is Christ's victory over death that is at the forefront of his mind? Death no longer has the final say over Christians. The resurrection of Christ speaks a more true, good, and beautiful word. In Christ, the perishable is made imperishable. What persecution or suffering is there which is able to reverse Christ's work and reign over us? None. Absolutely nothing overthrows Christ's throne. Every principality or power that attempts such a rebellion ends up just like the serpent who was promised a crushed skull in Genesis 3. Paul is able to weather the storm of suffering through his fidelity to God in Christ because God has proven his fidelity to St. Paul through Christ and the gospel. Nothing St. Paul is convinced can separate us from the love of a sovereign God who pledges his fidelity to us and then shows us that his promise is true. How has he already shown us that his promise is true? First, by not sparing even his own son, but giving him up for us all. And second, by not abandoning his son to death, but by vindicating him through the resurrection and seating him upon the throne in his ascension. This, St. Paul says, is the power of God. And it is the same power which is at work in all of us who believe. The very same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is in those of us who truly believe. Those of us called according to his purposes and called God's children by our union with Christ. What encouragement do we have to persevere through suffering? God's faithfulness to us. Evidenced by the fact that he has already defeated the greatest enemy we could possibly face. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, abolished death. And therefore, the Apostle concludes... Hold to the standing of sound teaching that you have heard from me, to the standard of sound teaching that you have heard from me. 
in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good treasure entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us. Friends, we don't bootstrap ourselves to perseverance. We are only jars of clay. We crumble into dust under the slightest hint of pressure, every one of us. Our fidelity to God and to each other, whether in times of suffering or times of flourishing, indeed, our very salvation is only possible with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us. The same Holy Spirit whom God, as we saw weeks ago in Titus 3.6, so graciously poured out on us abundantly. Amen.